Chris Domes. I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight at our AO journal series on Liz Frank injuries. The moderators are myself, Matt Riedel, and Kyle Schwazer. And our faculty are Dr. John Anderson, Andrew Oppie, and Dr. Bruce Sanjorzen. So here's our agenda for tonight. This is the introduction. We're going to be showing the videos in this order uh, with the papers. And then we'll have our Q&A for about 30 minutes and then a wrap-up and adjournment. So I'm Dr. Christopher Domes at University of Wisconsin Medical Center, and I'm joined by Dr. Bruce Sanjorzen out of University of Washington and Harborview Medical Center. And we're here to discuss his paper from 2000, Outcomes After Open Reduction and Internal Fixation of Liz Frank Joint. So I'd like to thank Dr. Sanjorzen for joining us, and thank you for all your contributions to the AO over, over your vast career. Well, thanks for the invites. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we'll start off with some uh, questions about your paper. When you guys started this and started looking into these patients, what was the real reason for looking into open reduction internal fixation of the Liz Frank injuries uh, in your group? I think the main driver was we had a fellow who was interested and it was about 10 years since uh, Craig Arndt's initial paper using rigid fixation. One of the drivers for me to do a foot and ankle fellowship after my trauma fellowship was a case I had as a chief resident that had multiple dislocations within the midfoot. And I pulled open the standard journals and the standard textbooks and found nothing at all. And I think the majority of people in those days were just putting a cast on or putting a couple of K wires in. So Craig Arndt's paper with Dr. Hansen was a, a game changer, but it was a relatively small series and didn't have real long follow-up. So Rod Quo and Christy Giovanni, who were both terrific fellows, one foot from one trauma at the time, decided to put their brains together and look these up, see if we could find anything worth, worth driving a conclusion. The secondary issue was that I had had a um, high profile patient who worked in the School of Medicine and who was six foot six and had a pure ligamentous disruption of his Liz Frank. And his other limb was impaired from childhood disorders. That was his only good limb. And we fixed him with screws. He had a size 13 or 14 shoe. And we fixed him. We used three five screws. We didn't have four oh screws in those days. And I took the screws out at about five months and the foot collapsed. So we had this initial cue. Should we be treating these pure ligamentous injuries differently? That was, those were the primary drivers. Nice. You had previously written really on salvage. I think in 1993, you wrote a salvage paper on Liz Frank. So it definitely has been an issue. Um, so based on your paper, what were, what are in your words, the most important findings? So I think first addressing your comment, the Liz Frank salvage paper, of course, was written because people weren't doing a good job treating them. So we knew we wanted to improve that, the outcome. And we knew that we could fuse them um, if, if we had to without significant consequences. So that added to the, to the mix. I, I think in all honesty, we didn't find much of value by contemporary standards. This was an observational trial. We didn't apply rigorous standards of reproducible measurements, and we didn't use a very um, psychometrically balanced outcome score. The AOFAS score has subsequently been shown to have a lot of 
bias built into it and our Monte Carlo style that makes it hard to really detect sensitive differences. So I don't think we're able to really give a large or at least an evidence-based response. We did find, as we were expecting to find, that the pure ligamentous injuries did not do as well. And that's probably because ligaments don't heal as well as bone. And if you're depending on just ligaments, you probably need a little bit more support. And it further suggested that getting them anatomic was a good thing for the patient. So those were more um, backing up prior studies than they were new, new findings. And in your paper, in the management, in your protocol, you guys don't really discuss screw removal um, after the open reduction internal fixation. Was that the standard of practice at the time? If so, when was that usually done? It's a very good question, and I have to put it in historical context because I don't think we had a protocol at the time. In general, we used flexible fixation to fix the fourth and fifth metatarsal, which we pulled at six weeks because we want the lateral border of the foot to move in the sagittal plane. The first, second, and third, which is known now as the medial column, has to be rigid, otherwise the medial part of the foot collapses. So we typically put the screws in there a minimum of 16 weeks, and we reassessed at that time, were they symptomatic, were they loosening, were they broken, <clears throat> and made the decision to remove them based on that, that time frame, the 16-week time frame. Gotcha. So normally 16 weeks for, for potential removal at the soonest. And I would say we were removing less than half of them at the time, and that's probably still true. Okay. And you, in the paper at least, it discusses the post-operative protocol, which included about six weeks of splinting and casting, and then a progressive weight-bearing plan after that. Is that currently still your protocol for these injuries, or have you altered that in any way? I think it's still fairly true that in those patients where there's pure ligament or primary fusions or mixed ligament and bone, we're generally keeping them non-weight bearing for six weeks. I give credit to people who are using the new plating systems that have orthogonal fixation who are trying to weight bear people uh, earlier. I think there's great potential benefit there. We haven't moved in that direction, I think, uh, in part because those systems are expensive and there's an element of uncertainty there. And as a senior person who's seen a lot of stuff fall apart, I would rather sacrifice a few weeks of non-weight bearing on the front end than have to redo it in 10 or 20% of the cases. Absolutely. And really in the 22 years essentially since this paper was written and has come out, how have you seen your practice of Liz Frank's change? I think we do a lot more primary fusions than we did in the past. And obviously that's a somewhat controversial concept. There are people who have shown a higher rate of revision in, in ORAF versus fusion. Those studies aren't strongly powered and they count hardware removals, which is a decision rather than an outcome. And there are people who advocate in the other direction and feel that if you fuse those joints, you're creating problems. And then there's Chris Cosia's view that if you don't take the screws out, you're, you're fusing them, whether you think you are or not. My own bias is that large people with long feet that have pure ligamentous injuries, particularly those over 40, 
those get a primary fusion for one, two, and three in my book because the risk is low and you're likely going to have to get them stiff anyway. For less large people, it's probably not as important. And for young people, I'm a little bit nervous about fusing the midfoot in a 20-year-old, although we do that in bunion surgery on a fairly regular basis. So I think the jury is still out and there's a lot of variation. So a surgeon can make his or her own decision about that. I lean toward fusion in bigger, older patients and away in the younger patients. And don't bother at all in the in the fractures in the fractures that are more fracture than dislocation, because bone heals better than ligament. So in the highly comminuted Liz Franks, you're just still screw fixating them or bridge plating them and not removing any cartilage. Right. If the ligaments are still attached to the base of the metatarsal, then I feel confident that once the bone heals. I'm not going to have to worry about stability at the joint. So those commented ones, as you reference, are probably in that category. Mm -hmm. And the bridge plating, I think um, that's certainly become a lot more common in the last 10 or 15 years. And it certainly helps with those that have metaphyseal missing bone or subluxation in that region. Uh, but those almost always have to come out just because of the size of the implant relative to the padding in that part of the foot bother patients when they tie their shoes. So they're very useful when they're indicated. They just require a second operation. And then is there anything else that you think this paper highlights that you'd like to cover? I think in a negative way, this is old literature. You know, we did descriptive findings. We had a single person measuring. We weren't careful about what outcome measures we selected. I think for a young person early on, they want to do a better job than we did. They want to start entering the data at the time of the injury into their electronic medical record. They want to embed in their electronic medical record a more responsive and psychometrically appropriate outcome measure, whether it's the FAM for the foot or the MFA or the short form MFA, something we know works to measure outcomes in patients. And x-rays, of course, have to be measured by more than one person, and you have to compare those. Those are all things we didn't do 23 or 24 years ago when we were doing this, and those are really a requirement now. This kind of paper gets you onto the first step of the ladder, but it doesn't help you progress to the top of the ladder. Yeah, still, it's, you know, as we look back, this is one of the biggest, or at least patient number-wise studies that we have for outcomes of Liz Franks really due to how uncommon the injury is. And as we look at this series of webinars, looking back at papers that kind of help drive things, it's good to see where we were and kind of what from there has led us to where we are now. And uh, we thank you so much, Dr. Sanjorzen, for taking time to join us on this webinar and, and for continuing such a great career with the AO and, and all your help and all your teaching that you've done for myself personally and then also for everybody else who's benefited from your vast experience. Thank you. Great pleasure to be here. Hi, everyone. My name is Matt Riedel. I'm one of the orthopedic trauma surgeons at Yale New Haven Hospital. And tonight I have the honor of uh, having a discussion with Dr. John Anderson. He's a professor of orthopedic surgery at 
Michigan State University. He's the co-director of the Foot and Ankle uh, Fellowship out there at Grand Rapids Orthopedics. And he wrote a really great article on Liz Frank injuries. Uh, it's titled Open Reduction Internal Fixation versus Primary Arthrodesis for Liz Frank Injuries. It's a prospective randomized study. So welcome, Dr. Anderson, um, to our discussion tonight. And thank you again for taking the time to join us and for doing the study. Uh, thanks for having me. Great. Our first, uh, our first question is, why did you decide to do this research? What, what brought you to have this clinical question and, and what made you want to do it? Uh, we, uh, in our uh, foot and ankle practice, do a lot of midfoot fusions you know, for all kinds of reasons, but we see a lot of degenerative problems with uh, midfoot arthritis and flat feet, and uh, we do a lot of TMT fusion procedures for uh, hallux valgus and uh, deformity correction. You know, so it made sense to us that these joints, we knew they did well when they were fused, and it made sense to us that traumatic disruption of these joints really weren't all that different from a functional standpoint than traumatic disruptions of cervical facet joints. You know, trying to preserve motion in these joints just didn't make sense to us. And the big question was whether we can reliably get a fusion in the traumatic population or, or does the non-union rate go down when there's soft tissue disruption associated with trauma? So we thought our study would be a great way to answer that question because we were big fans of midfoot fusion procedures from the get-go. And we were pleasantly surprised that our non-union rate did not go down. No, I saw, I saw the one non-union in, in all patients that were in the fusion group. That's, that's really a fantastic rate. One question I had for you, I noticed that you guys fixed, you know, when you did, when you had the fixed group, you fixed with screws and you didn't plate. Was, uh, is that kind of the, the standard way that you guys fix them is with intraarticular screws or, or have you guys switched to plating options? Uh, back then it was, uh, we just weren't uh, doing a lot of plate fixation in that area. Uh, nowadays, I think uh, if we have a hard time getting lag screw fixation we would certainly use plates and i use plates much more frequently now yeah particularly if uh, open reduction internal fixation is entertained you know there may be situations where you don't want to do a fusion and, and spanning plates are much more protective for the joint than right screw yeah. fixation and that's the reason I ask is I know, um, you know, often you take the implants out, but um, just the terms of post-traumatic arthritis and putting an intraarticular screw through the joint may lead to some of that post-traumatic arthritis. Maybe using spanning plates would help prevent some of that uh, necessity. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And then, you know, the nice thing about uh, this paper is our, our results, functional results were pretty similar. The biggest difference in our paper was the reoperation rate was lower with a primary fusion. But uh, I think there's there is still a role for open reduction internal fixation, and and for some people it's just more in their skill set. They would they would much rather do a ORIF than a fusion. And uh, I think this paper shows that they're both still viable options. Sure, and and I think you're right. I don't know that it would change the hardware removal rate. Uh, to use plates and screws. In fact, I think it would be just as high. Most people would probably want those out or the plates may break, et cetera, in the ORIF group. But um, yeah, that was just one question that I had was, was much of that happening back when, when the study came out or, or was it mostly 
intraarticular screw fixation. Yeah, our protocol was uh, at least two lag screws across each joint. Mm -hmm. So uh, this study was completed in the early 2000s. So that was uh, kind of our standard at that time. Uh, the nice thing was it they were all uh, treated by fellowship trained either foot and ankle or trauma surgeons and we all had very similar protocols for surgical reduction and type of fixation and post-operative management. So there really wasn't a big variable in terms of which surgeon was treating that patient. Right. And I, I know that you were saying you guys were doing a fair amount of midfoot fusion back at that time. Did this study push you more one way or another in terms of how you're treating them currently? Yeah, uh, we've been primary fusers since probably 2000. So I was a fuser even before this study came out mm -hmm. because of my experience doing midfoot fusions for all sorts of other things. Our trauma guys were doing open reduction internal fixation and we enrolled them uh, with the expectation that, that uh, we would uh, probably swing them uh, in in how they manage things and you know in reality i think we still have some trauma guys that that prefer not to do fusions for these injuries but you know i was a i was a fuser before this study came out and this just reinforced my my belief that this was a good operation right and do you do you, do you find that i'm sorry did you find that you did sway some of your, your trauma colleagues more into the fusion group yeah in our community it's it's uh predominantly primary fusion now. Another question that I have kind of following up with that, I know that you got 53 month follow-up, uh, you were able to call most of the patients. Do you have any longer term follow-up, especially on the ORIF group of, of how they did uh, maybe 10 years out, 15 years out? Uh, <clears throat> I think that's a great question. We're actually looking into that, but we don't have that data yet. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, hard to my, find patients that far, far along. Yeah, particularly trauma patients. Yeah, yeah. They, they tend to disappear. But uh, I, I can say that uh, having been in this community for 25 plus years, uh, I don't see a lot of ORIF patients coming back needing fusions. And I don't see a lot of fusion patients coming back getting revised. So these, these patients are for the most part doing quite well and I'd, I'd be very interested to see if there is a higher revision rate going forward. My, my suspicion is that the fusions once they're healed they do really well over the long term whether they have adjacent joint arthritis or the, the ORIF patients come back with with fusions and how they're doing from a functional outcome standpoint we just don't know. Yeah, I think that's always been the big worry is adjacent joint breakdown in, in disease uh, in, in the fusion group. Um, but you, you think you're not seeing much of that with, with your patients that you have out there? No, and uh, even in our, in our fusion population for degenerative conditions, you know, we, we are not seeing a lot of adjacent joint arthritis. You know, we tend to do a lot of gastroc releases, and I tend to do a lot of gastroc releases even in my Lisfranc population. When they're uh, when they're 
tight and there's an Aquinas contracture and I'm treating a list frank with a primary fusion, I, I tend to do a gastroc and I think that really unloads the adjacent joints. So that may be why we're seeing uh, small numbers of adjacent joint arthritis coming back long term. I think that's a great point. That's something that I've also started incorporating in both my fix and fuse, Liz Frank or Calcaneus or anything really midfoot or hindfoot. And that comes from one of my partners who's been a big proponent of that. And I agree, I've seen a big change in, in my patient outcomes, uh, even in my short career thus far. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that uh, I, I uh, would encourage everybody to take a look at that's treating these injuries. <clears throat> in, the, in the reconstructive population, Aquinas contracture is, is everywhere. Yeah. So we're, we're doing a lot of Aquinas correction for people with metatarsalgia, people with flat feet, people with midfoot arthritis. Uh, and you see this in the traumatic population as well, not just in midfoot fractures, but in ankle fractures and, and polytrauma. So uh, it's certainly something to look for. And I think another great point from the paper, you know, you were fusing, you were fusing one and two. How often were you fusing three? I know four and five, you obviously wouldn't fuse. There's so much motion through the lateral midfoot. Um, but was three oftentimes included or, or was that kind of a surgeon's discretion? Yeah, our protocol was we would get uh, intraoperative stress films on everybody. And if three opened up, they were included in the fusion. Uh, if the injury stopped, if it was a subtle list, Frank, and it stopped at the second TMT or the uh, list, Frank interval, then we would do it all through a single dorsal incision and stop at either first TMT or first and second. Yeah. Uh, or transverse fixation from, from the first to the second. So our Liz Frank screw in our study might have been a true oblique Liz Frank screw, or more commonly it'd be transverse screws from the first metatarsal into the second metatarsal, or first cuneiform into the second cuneiform. But we would take it all the way across if the third TMT joint opened up on stress films. And four and five, we pinned uh, so that those joints we considered mobile joints that that were essential and, and uh, they were not included in the arthrodesis population. Right. And when were the pins removed from four and five? Uh, pins removed from four and five at two months. Two months. Uh, because I, I believe all the, the deep hardware would come out at four months on average, I believe it was in the study, right? That's right. That's right. And I think a lot of people now that are doing RIFs and putting hardware in may even consider leaving the hardware in and not routinely taking it out, which probably would have equalized our results had, had that been an option. Which yeah. would functionally be an arthrodesis, if you right. think about it, with the joint uh, spanned by the implant. <laughs> right. right. We call them closet fusers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, anything that you think you'd want to add to any of the answers or discussions or any thoughts you have? Uh, yeah, I think one parting comment I would have is uh, in this paper, the one consistency we had was everybody had fixation that progressed from medial to lateral. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I still see a lot of uh, people that are treated where their medial fixation is uh, a single screw across the list frank interval from the medial cuneiform of the second metatarsal. All of ours had 
fixation across the first TMT joint. And I, I would just emphasize that if you do stress fill. do an abduction stress. Now, in order to get a Lisfranc ligament injury, there has to be a medial TMT injury or a medial NC injury that allows the first ray to push the second ray over. So uh, transverse fixation may miss that injury. Uh, most of the Lisfranc injuries in this study and, and pretty much all the ones that I've seen when we open them up, the medial first TMT capsule is torn. Mm -hmm. So I see a lot of I see a lot of injuries that are treated surgically where there's no fixation across that joint, and I think uh, the emphasis would be just to make sure you look for that. So absolutely, no, that's a great point, very well taken, and and thank you for making a point of addressing that because I think it's something that, uh, like you said, is not maybe taught often enough or not recognized often enough, and and can really lead to ongoing instability after after the fixation. I really, we really thank you for your time. This has been really fantastic. And thank you for doing this study. It, uh, yeah, it leads to a lot of insight. So I'm Kyle Schwazer from the University of Missouri and we're joined with um, Andrew Oppie. And we appreciate you being here all the way from Melbourne. Um, and we're gonna talk about the paper you had published in 2017 in JOT, which was fun functional outcomes post Liz Frank injury, for, uh, looking at transarticular screws, dorsal bridge plating, and a combination of the two. Um, so what, uh, what exactly prompted you to conduct this study? Oh, thanks very much for having me, uh, Kyle. Um, so basically, I think there'd been a huge trend at that time and still is towards moving away from transarticular screw fixation and moving to even the new locking plates uh, for fixation of Lisfranc injuries. And really, um, there'd been a few small number of papers looking at this, but when you looked into the detail of the papers, they actually weren't the new modern locking plates as well. And with the theory of um, transarticular screws, most sometimes anyway, being also more of a closed reduction rather than an open reduction. So we wanted to look at the reduction sort of um, comparison between um, the plate fixation and screw fixation. But also more importantly to us, we've had a big push around the world, obviously, but particularly also here in Australia on functional outcomes and how they relate to what we're doing. So we wanted to look at the functional outcomes related comparing plates essentially to screws. But then when looking at our groups in our cohort, we clearly had a small number of, that were actually having partial plates, partial screws. So that's why we made that combination treatment option as well. And what was your uh, working hypothesis going into the paper? Oh, look, you know, personal bias is that I, I love to plate these fractures. So the working hypothesis was that, you know, bridging with locking plates uh, was going to be, provide better functional outcome. And, uh, and that was the, what we thought this was paper was going to show. And, um, and which the beauty of doing research and good research is that it actually showed that that wasn't the case and that the uh, outcomes were very similar. Yeah, I'm a big bridge plater too. Um, I think that that's, you know, a lot of people are trending away from screws just to avoid violating the joint. Um, and so, like you said, the, the outcomes of the paper show that they were pretty similar. So is that 
you think that that's the most important aspect of the paper or what do you think the main main takeaway of the paper is? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, what we found quite clearly was that the fixation was not the main takeaway point of the paper, even though that was our, our primary hypothesis. So the main takeaway was, as we sort of known, but, have, but reaffirmed is that reduction is the key. So, um, but it's interesting talking about, as you said, about the transarticular screws, there's been some good papers showing, you know, sort of the percentage, how it affects about six to 7% of the articular surface putting a screw across. But, you know, when you look at those cadaver studies and they've done, that were great, but that's also on one screw pass. And I talked to my registrars and training surgeons about, well, how often are they putting multiple wires to make sure it's in the right position before they're putting the one screw across it as well. So that's also causing potentially more damage. So. Look, um, yeah, so, you know, I think the main thing was to look at was in the end, the finding of our paper. I mean, what we had 50 um, patients in our cohort in the end um, and was to find that actually, you know, the, the reduction is the key. But interestingly enough with my paper and unbeknownst to me at the time, but my very good colleague, Havinda Beattie, who works actually in private rooms with me, he works at our other major trauma centre in, in Melbourne, uh, the Alfred Hospital. He was doing the same paper as me, which we didn't know. And, and he has that published subsequently in JBJS or Bonded Journal Joke. Um, and he had um, 100 patients in his cohort with the identical findings to ours. So uh, what we've actually done now, because that's obviously was four years ago, I think his was about three years ago. Since then, we've combined our, our data and our research. So we've actually, um, I've always been part of the Victorian Orthopedic Trauma Outcome Registry. Uh, which we've put together, which follows up outcomes for all of our orthopedic trauma patients over Victoria, over four of our major hospitals. And it's been going now for eight or nine years. So we've got a lot of data in that. And we've now just recently received ethics approval and we've started looking at our cohort. So we've got now over 780 patients who have had Liz Frank injuries that have been fixed and we've got um, functional outcome data for that. And we're going back now to review like the breaking it down to the mechanism of injury, was it high or low um, you know, energy mechanisms? And then the fracture classification, because I find with all trauma, because I do a lot of trauma all over the body, but it's so hard to differentiate between, for example, a Liz Frank, that subtle you know, ligamentous injury compared to a massive fracture dislocation, for example. And where are we comparing apples with apples? So we're breaking up our 780 patients at the moment to work out what those injuries were, what, how they were then treated and then what their functional outcomes was. And the best thing about this paper is we're also going to get to sort of nearly 10 year data on them, which I think is really important because one of the weaknesses of our paper was also the fact that the data kind of follow up was not for an extended period of time. And we know that these potentially are going to develop post-traumatic arthritis more in the sort of medium to long-term future. And that's the, one, the cohort that we're looking at reviewing um, uh, and focusing on in this new group. That's great. Yeah, you know, you had a couple of things we could touch on there. Um, you know, you had mentioned the studies where the percentage of the joint, but then you also have toggle with weight bearing. So they tend to toggle and increase by about 10%. And then there are, it's also traumatized joints too. So they have a fracture. So it's not a pristine cadaver. So you're actually, it's actually probably more of the joint that's intact that's being damaged by the screw. So you would think that you would find something different. And, and maybe the problem is that like, at least the difficulty that I have with when I read and try and interpret Liz Frank literature is that you're right. It's not apples to apples. The, the, the range of midfoot injury that can occur 
you know, the level of fracture, which, which joint is more common needed, how much displacement there is, what other associated injuries there are. Like there's just so much variability, you know, with a, with a Liz Frank injury uh, that it can make it really hard to, uh, to study. It can make it hard to compare. And, it, and it's, you know, people talk about the gold standard is always, you know, prospective randomization, but it, it can be hard to, to randomize Liz Franks to treatment. And so, you know, what, what is something that you guys are trying to do in your study to maybe, I don't know, um, like in the study coming up, since we're talking about it, to, to kind of mitigate some of those issues that you have with, with, the, with the range and the spectrum of Liz Frank injuries? Look, unfortunately, um, as you know, it's really, really hard, as you've mentioned, but um, we're trying really hard to go through, and it, it's why it's take, it will take some time. We've got a, quite a good team on it, though, to go through the original x-ray. So, we, you know, we've got the data. We've got all the outcome data in our database. So that's the Victorian Orthopedic Trauma Outcome Registry keeps all of the, um, you know, uh, all the data, SF36As, EQ5As, and we just get, so we've got to do the foot and ankle scores. So we've got to do that individually, but we've got to go back and look at those case notes and the histories and the x-rays um, and then define them um, into the, those cohorts to try to break them up into those subgroups for analysis. So um, hopefully we can get some more information. And the beauty of our, our registry and therefore our cohort is that we have two major trauma centres involved and we've got two metropolitan hospitals involved. So hopefully we're really looking at getting some of those sort of lower energy sporting type injuries as well as the high energy injuries so we can look at all of them and then separate them for separate analysis as well. So, because as you're right, it's a, a huge issue um, and we really need to, you know, and the variation in treatment, even, you know, I've, I've done, you know, three of them this week fixed and, and the one I did on Monday was a very complex injury, soft tissue injury as well. I've only had to X fix out the lateral column because it's not safe to fix from a soft tissue perspective, reduced, you know, the, the um, TMT joint temporarily with a KY. So, you know, I'll go back and definitively fix it at some stage, but the, the you know, X fix down the lateral column might be definitive. Well, that would skew our results in this sort of injury. So we've got to, um, be able to exclude those sort of cases to try to get an appropriate cohort. With, with the study that we're talking about, has there been anything in your practice that, is, that has evolved or changed since this paper was published? Like, do you do anything differently that you didn't do at the time? Um, so again, even when we went back through the data, even our cohort, there was some cases that were using non-locking plates. So, um, but we've been using locking plates since, um, because, uh, there's always that theory that when you put a plate on with non-locking screws, that it might actually move your reduction because it's trying to mold to the plate and the plate might be, may not be appropriate molded to that anatomy of the foot. So I think the difference is that we try to get the joints perfectly reduced and held and then put a bridging plate on and actually use the locking screws because the idea is to hold it in position rather than sort of use it to reduce it. So um, that's probably one thing I've taken forward from it, but not really because I always was plating. And I think the only downside really to the plating, one of the major ones is obviously is the cost difference, which is a big issue um, compared to a single screw. Uh, going across the joint, a plate and screw is going to be a lot more expensive. But um, I'm very confident that, uh, again, still, that I think our outcomes are going to be better using the plates because of those all those issues that you and I have discussed today, uh, that I'm sticking with the plates for the time being until we've completed this more recent updated um, score. Because 
I also think, as I discussed earlier, the people the screws get a bit of a bad name because a lot of people do use them as a in a closed reduction percutaneous technique. And I think that then eliminates that sort of visual open reduction, which we think is the most important thing, having the joint perfectly reduced. So how do you know that that keystone is locked in and there's no little bit of debris blocking your reduction if you're doing it radio under II guidance? I just don't think that's perfect in, in my personal view. No, I completely agree. And then, you know, some of the original, original, you know, some of the older studies in the, in the fixed versus fused studies that, you know, they talked about secondary surgery rates and, you know, screw removal was pretty common at the time. And, and I, I don't typically take my plates out when I bridge plate. Uh, and that's all I usually do is bridge plate as well. I don't know if you traditionally take yours out, but I only take them out if they're having pain or if I do have to end up converting them to a fusion for some reason, which is pretty rare. Yeah, I think that's a really difficult decision and it's a case by case basis. I have to admit, I generally remove them, but that's not on everyone. So I review them clinically and see how they're progressing. I do find most patients, um, obviously who are having any sort of problems improve by having them removed. But um, there is definitely a, a group that are happy to leave them in and they're functioning well and I'll leave them in for sure. I understand actually the COTS group was looking at this um, when I was over there a couple of years ago when I was allowed to travel. Um, Pre-COVID, um, they, they were putting together a review um, and a, a randomised controlled trial. I think it was on the removal of uh, Liz Frank metalware. So I was looking forward to that outcome to see if that would sort of change my view and my attitude towards that. On your on the study we're discussing, uh, you know, aside from being retrospective, what's a, what's kind of the biggest limitation that's that you think is is with the study or or one that maybe has become more apparent over time. Oh, I think, um, you know, my firstly, I'd say my biggest limitation, there's always probably in any study is your case is your cohort numbers. So only 50 uh, patients. And then when you break them up into three separate groups, it's, they're all very small groups. So that's one thing we're really trying to address in our new study. Um, there's obviously uh, a little bit of, it's a retrospective study. It'd be great to be prospective, but I just find in trauma particular, that is just so hard. And I've been part recently of some very big prospective um, randomised controlled trials here in Australia, and um, and the, the it's so hard to get patients to consent to go down the path of the randomised. They end up just saying, you know, I want this, or what do you do want to do? Kind of thing. It's just, anyway, I find that very difficult. Uh, and, and really, basically, the other thing was probably just as you said, was the outcome scores um, not being validated, but they're the best I think we've got at the moment. Uh, and we'll continue to use them. So they're, they're probably the three major things, the limitations of our study, um, and that we're looking to try to address when we move forward with the next uh, version of it. All right, well, I think that's it. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I know there's a big time difference and we appreciate you being here with us. Um, uh, so thanks again. Look forward to the questions and answers. Thanks very much, Carl. Thanks for having me. So that concludes our video at this time. Uh, we will now start our question and answer session. And uh, before we do that, of course, I want to thank very much uh, everybody who's been participating in this uh, for coming and being uh, involved in this. If you do have questions, there is a question and answer section that you can type them. If you would um, feel free to type any questions that you have. We'll go over some other questions as well. We also want to thank, of course, our faculty, uh, especially uh, Dr. Oppie, who's joining us uh, tomorrow in the future, really, uh, at least if we're here in the United States. And also thank uh, very much Dr. Sanjorzin and Dr. Anderson for joining us. So now we'll have 
uh, our moderators as well as our faculty, you guys can go ahead and start your videos if you'd like, and we'll start that portion. There was one um, one question in the chat about, and I think that it was uh, Dr. Anderson who was talking about Aquinas contractures, and they want to know how an Aquinas release, like a gastroc recession, can help prevent uh, midfoot arthritis. Uh, I think that's a very good question. <clears throat> We're doing uh, gastroc releases for all kinds of conditions in the foot in degenerative situations. And uh, the way we look at it is you have things under tension in weight-bearing stance, uh, supported in the bottom of the foot, and the dorsal foot is under compression in stance. So we're doing gastroc recessions to try and reduce the tension stress on the plantar soft tissues and, and concomitantly to reduce the dorsal compression stress across the midfoot. So it just reduces the amount of bending moment in the midfoot. Um, so it's a fairly common thing for us to do for treatment of midfoot arthritis. Uh, certainly uh, Aquinas, we don't know if Aquinas causes arthritis or not. Uh, we suspect it does. Uh, <clears throat> we do have people with, with early midfoot arthritis that we've done gastroc recessions on and they get reduction of their midfoot pain without midfoot fusions. Uh, so sometimes the end justifies the means and, and you know, at least symptomatically, we're making people with radiographic midfoot arthritis less symptomatic when we do a gastroc release. We also looked at our fusion rate several years ago and found that those patients that we did a midfoot fusion on uh, with a gastroc release had a higher union rate than those without a gastroc release. So by reducing that, that bending moment across the midfoot, um, maybe you're improving your fusion rate. I'm not sure if that lengthy answer I, I agree with Dr. Anderson that it's a, you're changing the mechanical environment. You're not directly approaching the problem. So it's very hard to measure your outcome from that. But if you back the question around and say, how often is a tight Achilles or gastroc associated with forefoot overloading disorders like metatarsalgia, midfoot sag, we address that back in the 90s, we built a device that we called an equinometer that had a four bar linkage and it connected to a foot plate and we could have an examiner push on the plate and move the foot up and we get an electronic readout, not a subjective one, but a fairly objective readout of that gastrocnemius. And a couple of the fellows put some papers together. I think Christy Giovanni might've been first. And we just took all the people that had forefoot overload, midfoot sag, hypermobile first ray, and tested them. And then we plucked people out of the waiting room or spouses as matched controls, age and sex match controls. And about 80% of the people who had those problems had a tight gastroc as defined as less than five degrees of dorsiflexion. And about 20% of the control group also had it. So clearly there's an association there. We're seeing it at a much higher rate in the people who have the disorder. But as John points out, it's really hard to say this was the solution. I think you can look at it as addressing a reduction in the bending moment. You think about fusing a tarsometatarsal joint that's that big 
and it has two times your body weight crossing it every day, and it's got a bending moment applied. That's a lot to expect of that joint. So by reducing the amount of bending force you're putting on it, it's gonna maybe let it stay put until it heals and um, put a little bit less force overall. Dr. Oppie, has your group in Australia, do you guys perform any gas rock slides or uh, processions? Oh, thanks very much for having us here, Chris. Um, yes, uh, generally, yes, when, when it's associated with a fusion, so with an arthrodesis, either primarily or secondarily, um, then it's, it is uh, very, there's a high rate of doing that. But um, obviously, if we're just doing the fixation without the fusion, it's generally not done at that primary setting. But something that's carefully evaluated, potentially if they're going for even removal of metal, or obviously if they're going coming back for subsequent delayed fusion, uh, definitely um, assessed and, and a high chance of doing it at that time. Great. You bring up a good point in that in the trauma population, you can't test for Aquinas because it hurts. You know, the midfoot's disrupted. You try to test, you can't. You can look at the other foot and sometimes that's tight. And then you can say, okay, if we stabilize this midfoot and then try to dorsiflex it and it's tight like the other side, then we'll release it. Or if the patient tells you that they've been having symptoms of Aquinas in advance, but I'm like Dr. Oppie, I rarely release them acutely with trauma unless the other side is very tight and they had prodromal symptoms. That's a great discussion. Uh, the next question that I see in the chat is, has removal of bridged plating uh, helped the final outcome in some cases? I think that's directed toward Dr. Oppie. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, yes, um, and I obviously presume that question's coming from um, primary fixation rather than fusion for obvious reasons, but just to state that. And um, look, I think as Kyle and I discussed in, in our webinar, really, it really is a matter of clinically assessing your patients. And there are some patients for whatever reason, I, I've failed to be able to predict this when I'm fixing them, but generally who tolerate the plates very well and seem to function fine. Now, whether they're getting some sort of a partial even arthrodesis, or even if it's got a sort of a, um, a soft tissue arthrodesis, if that makes sense, like just enough stability that the, the joints aren't really relying on the plates much, they tolerate them very well. But as a general rule, I find quite a lot of, particularly the younger, more active patients do find them quite distressing. And by re removing them, they do um, get a lot of benefit from that. And they actually come back very early to say they just feel that their midfoot is freed up and sort of as you'd expect, because these joints are hopefully um, getting some movement back, but it really depends on the significance of their injury and, that, and why the plates were used. And was it a, just a simple ligamentous injury? Was it a complex bone injury? So I don't think you can just say a general rule by removing them, it helps them, but there is definitely a small cohort that benefit a lot from having them removed. I do wonder if maybe taking out that plate that's spanning the joint frees up, you know, some of the pressure from the, the joints surrounding the, the joint that was spanned and, and disperses the pressures. I think there's no doubt that's the case. Exactly right. And, um, and you know, I'm sure we've all been there where you go in and, and the, there's some screws that are broken and things. So things have been on the move and some patients clearly can even tolerate that and then live with it. And other patients don't like that because surely the plate's rubbing on the bone. If, if the screws are broken, it's not going to be well tolerated most of the time and they get removed. So 
Um, and that's why, you know, as we discussed, the older population, definitely it's a clinical assessment. My younger population, it's generally taking them out at six months is, is my general rule. A question for Dr. Anderson in your fusions. Are you prepared, how are you preparing the joints? Are you adding extra bone graft at the time of fusion for these? Are you attacking it like a, a lapidus? Uh, what, what's your kind of strategies with that? For uh, primary ligamentous injuries, generally we treat them just like a, a midfoot degenerative fusion. So we we'll use bone graft, local bone graft, and just about everybody will save the bone dust from the drill bits. Uh, if there are cavitary defects or cystic changes or there's some bone loss anywhere, uh, we will certainly add bone graft and that uh, is kind of dealer's choice what people prefer. So my go-to bone graft is usually crushed cancellus allograft. Uh, if I'm dealing with a non-union, I'll, I'll get autograph and supplement it with some biologic that's readily available on the market. Yeah, but I don't routinely bone graft uh, all my midfoot fusions, nor do I routinely bone graft all my list rank injuries. Yeah, I take account of a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, I do change how I approach the injuries where there's a comminuted second or third metatarsal base fracture, where you may have a segmental uh, shaft or proximal metatarsal fracture, where it can be very hard to, to get any compression with those fusions. And I uh, tend to use bridge plating for that injury. And early in my career, I would not fuse those joints. I would just line them up and try and regain bone stock. Uh, my, my practice changed when I came back and fused patients that had ORAFs, uh, which I found very technically difficult. The bones, the bone quality was usually significantly compromised because you're doing that fusion six months, a year, maybe even longer. Activity has been severely limited and the bone density just kind of melts away. So I've gone to fusing them early because I think the bone quality is the best when they first get injured. That's, That's kind of a, there's a question that was asked yeah. in the chat, basically saying, do you feel like going back and doing an arthrodesis after ORAF uh, has, does it affect the union rate? Or, I mean, we could even expand that and say, do you think it's more difficult? And Dr. Anderson said he thinks it's more difficult, but you know, the other panelists, what do you think about the difficulty and maybe the union rate too? I don't have data to answer that with it. I agree with John that it is nicer to go in and do it primarily if you have the bone stock to do it, because then it's one operation, not two. You know, the second time in the tissues aren't going to be as compliant and the uh, um, bone is going to be a little raggedy. So I, I don't have an answer for the question that the person wrote. I just think it's a little bit easier to do it primarily if you think you're heading that way. We do have uh, the very first fusion paper we wrote you know, had about a 4% non-union rate for midfoot fusions. And the number one risk factor, this was in you know, all comers, not just uh, the traumatic population, but the, the number one risk factor for a non-union was previous surgery. 
uh, that wasn't specifically addressing those who had previous surgery for a list frank injury, but it was any surgery in that area. So whether you can extrapolate that or not, I don't know. Yeah, I think as the faculty have clearly stated, uh, with, with great comments and totally agree, but the only concern I'd have about increasing non-union is in bone stock in a more significant sort of fractured situation. Um, and I think if you'd fix that and go back later with better bone stock, you've probably got a better chance of union. Um, but if you can address that lack of bone stock with some appropriate uh, graft at the time, it probably obviously decreases that risk. That just it makes obvious sense, I suppose. Great. And the last question that I see here in the, in the chat is, uh, what is your preferred skin incision locations for a midfoot injury that involves the first through fifth TMTs? So all five joints all the way across, where, where do you guys uh, prefer to, to place your incisions? Uh, that's a great question. I'll kick off because I'm still unmuted. Um, was uh, I've actually published on this as well, and I've obviously got a decent trauma bias on it is because I just sometimes find, particularly in the more major trauma cases, that you, you really need to be able to get to nearly all aspects of the foot. And my personal preference is just the sort of standard Hanover universal incision for my list frank injuries. So I try to centralise that over the second metatarsal um, going straight up. Um, and then you can go all the way up to the tibia if you need to for whatever trauma you're dealing with, all the way down to the metatarsal heads. Now, Having said that, I very rarely have to get into four and five open through that approach. It's very good for one, two, and three. Four and five, in my mind, is if it's crushed and short on the lateral column, often I will just do a bridging X fix to span out for six weeks. Or if it's um, more a translational dorsal plantar translational issue, I'll reduce it um, more percutaneously uh, using II and fix with, with KYs again temporarily for six weeks. So again, yeah, universal single long incision for me. And it also helps me when I do have to come back for the removal and potential um, fusions in the future. I find that quite a well-worked universal incision to help me. I have a similar answer. I like the Hanover incision when we have a midfoot jumble, which is more than just one, two, three, but also intercuneiform uh, show part injuries. If you have everything that Hanover approach is the only way to go. Typically, though, for Liz Frank, I'll use a, one approach to get to one, two, and three, and then a much smaller approach over at four and five, two separate approaches, the, the more medial one along the medial border of the second ray, and then the second one along the border of the fourth ray. Yeah, mine's very similar yeah, to Bruce's. I'll generally use two dorsal incisions for List ranks, and I can often see four through the lateral incision. I tend to cheat it a little bit towards the lateral border of the fourth toe. So my fourth TMT, I can I can line up the base of the third and the fourth TMT joint directly, and then I'll percutaneously fix number five. But I'll I'll do a, a soft tissue bridge, uh, overline the dorsalis pedis, and work underneath it to get one and two on the medial side and then two and three on the lateral side most commonly but i've used the hanover and, and find it very useful
Um, I've got a question for all of you then. What, um, you know, it's kind of been brought up a few times and it's regarding research. What, um, what outcome scores are you typically trying to use or look for when you're generating your research or, because there are not many that are validated and I don't think any that you should use by yourself, by itself in isolation. So which, cause some are very cumbersome and some are not comprehensive enough. And so what are you guys typically using in your research and what do you think is valuable when you're reading research? I would defer to Bruce. I would, start, I would start with saying, please don't use the AOFAS score. The AOFAS has published two editorials saying don't use it. The Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery has published two editorials saying don't use it. It was a great idea when it started. It was taking a bunch of smart people, putting them together and saying these are the things people complain about. But it's a combination of patient reported and provider measured. So it's not very objective and you can't use it across sites. And it has a Monte Carlo effect, meaning the scores bunch at the low end at the high end without much in between. So you can't detect differences between two groups using that score. The uh, musculoskeletal functional assessment tool was created for trauma patients and it's quite good. It's time consuming to do, and it has an inverted scale. So if you wanna use the uh, short form MFA, that's a pretty good tool. The FAM, F-A-A-M, functional, what in the world does FAM stand for? I can't even remember. Uh, uh, foot and ankle outcome, uh, foot and ankle assessment measure, something like that. It's very sensitive. It has a very tight MCID, the number that you can use to detect a difference between two groups. And it has been shown over and over again to be uh, sensitive along the full spectrum and psychometrically valid. So that's a good one. The FADI is another tool that works pretty well, but I would say in your electronic medical record, put in a pain score and don't make it just a simple pain score. Say uh, a one to 10 scale is good. Say average pain, worst pain and pain interference. That's the numeric pain grade system. Very easy in ankle arthritis trials. We were looking at, we were measuring the change from baseline to treatment. And I found of the 500 patients, there were about 15 of them and they had put a zero for pain preoperatively. And I said, why did you score this as zero for pain? And he said, well, I was sitting down when you asked me and it doesn't hurt when I'm sitting down. So be specific and say average pain, worst pain, those are much better metrics because pain is a large driver for what people come to see. And then make sure you have something good like the MFA that will capture other things. So they come in and say, I'm doing terrible. And you look at their foot and their foot looks great. And I said, well, foot looks great. And you said, there's no pain in your foot. So what's the problem? Well, my dog died, you know? So you want to be able to capture the other things besides the specific things. And you know, use the promise scores. If you're in a place that has access to the the uh, computer-driven scores, that's a really useful tool too. And um, which version of Epic allows it, I can't remember, but that's another pathway. The only downside of the PROMISE score is that as someone ages, the questions it asks are different. So it's a little bit harder to do a longitudinal score like you'd want to do a pelvic fracture or a pilon fracture, something like that. 
So that's my relatively short answer to a, a long question. I can't outdo you uh, that, uh, Kyle. You and I touched on it in our webinar and it was the biggest issue with what we did and we're still looking at it for the, the new study we're currently doing. And as I mentioned, we, we keep just more of those generic outcome stores, but to focus more specifically on the foot and ankle, we, we did use the last month for Bruce's comments, the AOFAS, but also the FFI. So, um, and uh, and as you and I discussed, you know, were they really ideal and are there better options? So uh, definitely, um, take what uh, Bruce said on board uh, moving forward. So thank you. One question I have is for really the traumatic Liz Franks, which I think we all agree is a somewhat different beast than the ligamentous Liz Franks, really having to do with the soft tissue involvement. In somebody who you're concerned might have, I'll say this word, foot compartment syndrome, if you believe that exists or not. I think there's definitely some data suggesting that it does exist and maybe needs to be addressed more uh, often, um, but that's a whole different webinar probably. Um, how are you guys managing those patients who have extreme amounts of swelling and or soft tissue loss on the top of the foot where your incisions would be or you're looking directly at your potential hardware? Um, I'll start again because I'm off mute, but um... Basically, um, yeah, so we don't believe in sort of foot compartment syndrome. We believe in skin compartment syndrome. So meaning that if there's obviously dusky toes and they're not looking great, then we will decompress the hematoma uh, using the pie crusting technique. Um, well described uh, by Harborview. But um, so, and then it allows me to still do my longitudinal incisions on the lines that I will once I've patiently waited my two to three or even four weeks to, to get in there when the skin's appropriate. Um, obviously, if it's a significant um, open injury like that, we involve plastics very early and do a, a fix and flap, a combined operation. Um, and otherwise, I'm very big on, I very rarely have to use external fixation temporarily because I find most of the midfoot injuries are those more translational injuries than longitudinal. So if there's shortening, absolutely, I'll put an X fix on to hold my length to, while I'm waiting. But I, it frustrates me greatly when I see someone who's popped up and they put an X-Fix on thinking that's going to help. The X-Fix doesn't control that, that fantastically well. So I will ask them in my hospital, we'll reduce it and put a temporary percutaneous K-wire, not bent and not cut through the skin, but just cut flush with the skin, underneath the skin. So it's easy to remove at the time of definitive surgery. And then just patiently wait uh, for the soft tissues to, to settle down, as I said, two, three, or even four weeks if we have to. And then those settings, Dr. Oppie, are you going for fusion or do you go back, revert back to kind of fixation? Oh, no, no, I'm happy with fixation. Again, depending on if there's significant articular damage and everything, obviously definitely would go ahead for fusion. But um, I don't think that the timing delay would alter my decision uh, depending on the uh, injuries at the time, if that makes sense. Uh, I'll answer uh, my take. I don't take as much acute uh, trauma as I did in the past, but uh, there's definitely an injury where the soft tissues are severely compromised and whether it's a compartment syndrome or a skin compartment, getting stability and decompressing that probably is going to save you skin and give you better soft tissues to manage down the road. So, uh, 
of the injury, know it when you see it, uh, you're probably much better off taking them to the OR emer emergently, you know, and I will treat them like a standard list rank. I'll just do it early. You know, hopefully the day they come in, some of these you see in the ER and they just, they're miserable and they can't get comfortable and their skin's ready to explode. And I'll take them back and fix them primarily. And if I can't get the skin closed after decompressing the hematoma, I'll just put a vac on and treat it like a, like an open wound and come back and do it in a couple of days. Yeah. But I think the soft tissues respond much faster that way, particularly if you have a lot of bony comminution and they're the shards of bone that are sticking up into the soft tissue. I think those are, are uh, something we probably should consider more of surgical emergencies. I don't disagree with either of those strategies. I do think that a formal compartment release is not something we do very often, but pie crusting occurs, pinning to get the parts reduced or even an early intervention for definitive fixation. On the rare occasion when the foot's just plain too swollen, I have done a medial incision, the full length of the foot over the adductor muscle, so that if it doesn't close well, you're looking at muscle instead of bone, but that's about the only release I do for that indication. I don't want to be too or divisive, I guess, with this question, but um, say uh, our faculty have a Liz Frank, ligaments Lig Frank injury at this point in, in their lives. Are you guys looking for operative fix uh, ORAF or fusion? We'll, we'll try to make this our last question here. So answer, answer as you will. So at my age, I would definitely have a primary fusion if I had um, primarily soft tissue problem. I don't want to come back. Uh, but I haven't tried to be a trauma patient like Dr. Anderson has. So maybe he can give a little better insight than I can. Uh, having been a trauma patient, I would opt to avoid all surgery at all costs, if that's possible. Yeah. But I would definitely go with a primary fusion. Maybe avoid the trauma, not the surgery. Avoid the trauma. It's much easier to avoid the trauma. John, you could maybe argue that if that's the case and you've got that subtle injury, if it is one of those subtle ones, to maybe manage it conservatively to give it a run for its money and then go for the fusion when it doesn't work. But that could be wasting a bit of time. Um, so generally, uh, in my age and functional level here, with and also the, the, the uh, some of the elite footballers I look after, I still go. Oh, Dr. Oppie, you froze right I at the think, perfect I time. Think that was intentional, I think. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you do that on purpose? That's genius. Uh, did, did you, sorry, Dr. Oppie, if, if you uh, were did speaking, you, you did, you, you froze right when you were giving your answer. It couldn't have been uh, right. any better. All right. Anyway, I just, I tell the patients generally that um, I personally would actually get mine fixed. But as a general rule, uh, I tell all my patients that you know, I put the plates in, I take them out, and then I may have to put them back in again. So. Um, you know, there's a high chance they'll end up with fusion, and it just depends that in a younger person, particularly, um, I'd be looking at fixation. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, uh, with that, we'll end our uh, Q&A session here. I want to once again thank our moderators as well as our faculty. Thank you guys so much for participating in this uh, AO 
journal session. Uh, we appreciate all the research you've done, and all the research you continue to do, as well as the teaching that you've all done in your involvement with the AO. And uh, thank you, Kyle and Matt, as well, for uh, helping me out with this so much, guys. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Great to see yeah. you all. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate it.